Hello, it's Thursday, April the 6th, and welcome to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast examining the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. I'm Bill Whalen, a Hoover Institution Research Fellow. Joining me today in the Hoover studio, Michael McConnell, Hoover Institution Senior Fellow, the Richard and Francis Mallory Professor and Director of the Constitutional Law Center at Stanford Law School, and from 2002 to 2009, a circuit judge on the United States Court of Appeals for the Tenth Circuit, where he served alongside one Judge Neil Gorsuch. Michael, thanks for joining us today. Happy to be here. So let's talk today about Gorsuch, the Supreme Court, the future appointments under Donald Trump, and let's begin this with breaking news today. As it's Thursday morning, the Senate has gone nuclear as far as Supreme Court nominees go. Good thing or bad thing? Well, I think it's a good thing. I also think it's a much overhyped thing, much less significant than the press wants to make it. There has never in the history of the United States been a partisan filibuster of a Supreme Court nomination. They never happened, and this means they are not going to happen in the future. So far from changing the practice in the Senate, what this does is it it leaves the practice of the Senate unchanged. What would have been revolutionary, uh, completely unprecedented, is for a nomination of the sort of Neil Gorsuch, completely uncontroversial figure, uh, to be blocked by a minority of the Senate. That has never happened. Right. You go back and look at the Clarence Thomas nomination, for example, and Thomas obviously has a very controversial, very heated hearing in the Senate Judiciary Committee, but when it comes time to a roll call vote, it splits between Republicans and Democrats. The filibuster is not invoked then. He doesn't get 60 votes, but he's confirmed to the Supreme Court. And as it's been for yes, past Yes, I think with 51 votes. 51 very, or 52, very, but very he narrow, gets yes. over the threshold. There's no talk then about him needing 60 to be legitimized or anything like that. But different Senate these days, isn't it? Uh, very different. Mm-hmm. And not just a different Senate. I think it's a different electorate with the senators. I don't really believe that these United States senators, people like Charles Schumer, really believed that what they were doing was right. They were simply responding to intense pressure from a base that is so infuriated at the election of Donald Trump that they don't want the Democrats to uh, play ball. Right. Uh, I'd like to ask you why you think they picked this fight with Neil Gorsuch, but first let me read some words that you wrote with regard to your former colleague on the Tenth Circuit. This is from a Defining Ideas column on February the 6th, and you wrote, quote, More important than his qualifications are his qualities of mind. He is rigorously intelligent, fair-minded, and one of the finest writers in the entire judiciary. Like Justice Scalia, he tries to minimize the role that judges' own views play in the interpretation of the law. Perhaps unlike Justice Scalia, a pugnacious lawyer, a pugnacious lover of intellectual battle whose intellectual inclination was to clarify and sharpen differences, Gorsuch looks for common ground even with judges of a generally opposing position. Why would you want to oppose that guy? Well... Obviously, you wouldn't. And in ordinary days, this nomination would have sailed through the way, yeah. you know, nominations like Elena Kagan uh, uh, and, uh, and and Stephen Breyer and mm-hmm. Ruth Bader Ginsburg have sailed through uh, uh, in the past. I think uh, this is all about uh, partisan division, the extreme di- uh, uh, difference between the Republican base and the Democratic base and the fury over the surprising election of Donald Trump. I don't think it has anything to do with Neil Gorsuch as a person. Now, you look at the various reasons to oppose Gorsuch. Um, Dianne Feinstein, for example, said that she was not pleased that he didn't give her answers. Is this a legitimate claim by a senator? 
Well, it's very surprising from her. She has actually been a very constructive bridge between the parties in the past and has supported uh, Republican nominations that, you know, that had some opposition uh, in the past. She's, I think, as close to being a nonpartisan or bipartisan figure as you can find uh, in the minority. So for her to say this is really quite shocking. Uh, just nominations, nominees to the court don't answer questions. Ruth Ginsburg didn't answer questions. They, they don't, and this is for very good reason. Uh, any case that comes before them, if they answer on the record in the Senate as to how they're going to vote, they're going to have to recuse themselves. It would be unethical uh, for someone to tell the senators how they're going to vote and then participate in the case. So, of course, the nominees aren't going to be able to answer these questions. I remember um, being at a Hoover function in Washington uh, several years back, and Justice Scalia was uh, giving the speech at lunch, and uh, a participant in the audience uh, asked him a question about same-sex marriage, and the same-sex marriage case was approaching the Supreme Court. The question was asked, and Scalia just essentially said, I can't really comment on it because it's coming toward the court. The question was asked again and again, and finally Scalia said, are you trying to get me recused? <laughs> well, he somewhat accidentally answered a question about the Pledge of Allegiance. Mm -hmm. I suspect sort of thinking that the Pledge of Allegiance is like uh, motherhood and apple pie. Uh, and when he realized what he had done, he did in fact recuse himself in the Pledge of Allegiance case. Right. Now, I did a little homework on Dianne Feinstein, and uh, I was surprised to see that she actually voted against John Roberts when he was up in 2000 and. I want to say 2005. I might be wrong about 2006, but when he was up for confirmation. I'd forgotten that. For sure it was 2005. That was an interesting vote, Michael, because 22 Democrats voted for Thomas and, 40, and 22 Democrats voted against him. So it was a direct split on both sides. But she was in the camp that voted against. I'd point out, though, that was also a year before she was up for re-election. And this year she is also one year away from re-election, and she will be 85 years old next year. And there are a lot of Democrats who are clamoring for that seat. They want to replace her in the Senate. Maybe she is looking at her base in California deciding that she needs to take care of business back home. So opposing Justice Gorsuch, Judge Gorsuch, is one way to go about doing that. I mean, that could be when uh, Illinois Senator Alan Dixon was the only northern Democrat to vote in favor of Clarence Thomas. He then was defeated in the next uh, Democratic primary. Right. Um, our listeners may not know this, but you have sat on the bench and you've been through the federal judicial nomination process. Um, let's talk a bit what it is like to go through that process slash ordeal slash trauma for some people. You made it. You got on the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals. Um, it took 14 months, though, for that to happen. Is that is that too long for this process to happen? Should it be 14 months? I don't think so. Now, I'm, other people have gone even longer than that. And right. You know, I don't want to feel. I don't feel sorry for myself. All is well, but that really is an inordinate a period of time. Uh, there's no need for it. It doesn't actually accomplish any objectives. Uh, I once did a study, although this is a while, so I may not be able to remember the precise details. But when you look at the uh, judges from both parties who had who had the greatest delays in their confirmation and the largest numbers of negative votes, and you look down the list, those are not 
the bad judges. Those are not weak judges. These tend to be the stars of the judiciary. So the perverse thing about the senatorial process is that it really is not designed to weed out bad nominees. It's designed to weed out the best nominees from the other side. Uh, Benjamin Franklin talked about something about this at the Constitutional Convention and talked about a, uh, a Scottish system for choosing judges in which each side got to uh, eliminate the uh, choices that the uh, other side was making. And he said it was called uh, knocking the brains out of the committee. <laughs> I like that. When you were nominated by George W. Bush, you were nominated uh, one week before the 9-11 attack. Uh, you were teaching law in Utah at the time? That's right. So your sponsor, your, your protege, would have been Warren Hatch? That's right. So he led you around the Senate? Did you, he, did you actually go through the process of meeting I did. I met very few senators. I think I met three or four. Mm-hmm. And if I remember correctly, the person who led me around was somebody from the Department of Justice. Appellate court judges just don't go through the same strains as the uh, Supreme Court justices do in terms certainly of Certainly not. Certainly not. I mean, so, some may, but I didn't. So 14 months, though, what was the hang-up? With, why the 14-month delay? Well, I was regarded as one of the more controversial nominees uh, at the time. Uh, President Bush named 11 nominees in his first tranche. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was one of those, and the uh, uh, other side in the Senate, uh, Senator Leahy, declared four of those to be, quote, controversial, unquote, and I was on that unfortunate list. All right. Uh, but eventually, push comes to shove, and it is time for you to face face confirmation or not. Uh, we were talking about this before the tape, but I think it'd be worth going through again. You actually are passed out on a voice vote. That's right. But it's not as simple as just all in favor, yay, all in favor, nay. Well, no, this is the very end point, and by voice vote, I remember I talked to my students the next morning and said, I was, vote, I was approved unanimously by the Senate. How many votes do you suppose that takes? And they guessed, well, I don't know, 100. Uh, and I said, one. one. It takes one vote. That was very late at night, and uh, the majority leader moved that I be approved. He, I, I believe he was the only person on the floor at the time, and that was why it was uh, a voice vote. Uh, up until that point, uh, I didn't know whether I was going to be confirmed or not. I was, it was definitely uh, could have gone either way. Right, because you, uh, this was right on the cusp of the midterm election for, for W. Bush. That's right. The midterm election happened in between, if I remember correctly, in between my hearing and uh, my confirmation. Very good. Let's put you in charge of the situation for a moment. You get to redesign the confirmation process with the Senate. What improvements do you make to it? How do you, how do you streamline it? How do you, how do you accelerate it? What, what, what nonsense that you see in it? What do you take out of it? How do you make it a better process for, for the American people? I think that's a very hard question because the Senate is a political institution. And to say that it should start behaving less politically is like telling a dog not to act like a dog. I, I don't know how you do that. Uh, I think that there could be some rules. I'm all in favor of eliminating the filibuster. The filibuster has not been part of our historic practice Mm -hmm. with respect to uh, judges. Uh, Lower court judges were filibustered for the first time uh, in uh, 2003, I believe it was. And then, so 
Bush's nominees filibustered, and then some of Obama's nominees were filibustered, and then the Senate put an end to that. Uh, no Supreme Court justice has ever been filibustered. Uh, that is, a Abe Fortas is a, a special case, it but a not. It wasn't. It wasn't really a, a filibuster in the in the modern sense, and it wasn't partisan. It had to do with, you know, very serious ethical problems that ended right. up forcing his resignation from the court. Uh, so there's really never been a partisan uh, a filibuster, and eliminating that is a good thing. Uh, James Madison made a proposal at the Constitutional Convention that I think would be at least worth thinking of, which is that nominations are approved unless they are disapproved by a certain vote, and he was thinking a supermajority uh, within a certain uh, period of time. Uh, which would mean that uh, the minority can't just, uh, or even the majority can't uh, prevent a confirmation simply by doing nothing. Uh, that would have uh, served to benefit Merrick Garland. Right. But the benefit of having it in the form of a rule is that it applies to both sides. I think the reason the Republicans were so unwilling to uh, act on Merrick Garland is that they were quite certain probably correctly, that if the shoe were on the other foot, that the Democrats would never act on a Republican nomination uh, in the final year of an eight-year uh, uh, presidency. But if both sides could be confident of a better treatment for both sides, I think we could move to a better place. Do you think Garland was treated fairly, or does this get back to what you said earlier about the Senate just being a, a political animal? I mean, he was not treated fairly, but I don't think any nominee from either side would have been treated fairly in the final year of uh, an eight-year presidency when the other party controls the Senate. Uh, such a person, there, there hasn't been a confirmation in over 80 years under those circumstances. So he was the unfortunate uh, collateral damage uh, to a fight that had nothing to do with him. He is an honorable person, an excellent judge, I think one of the finest judges in the uh, judiciary. President Obama was to be commended for that choice, mm -hmm. uh, but he wasn't defeated because of anything about himself. Right. As we're taping on Thursday by this time, tomorrow, Friday, um, we should expect um, that Judge Garland will become Justice Garland, excuse me, that um, uh, Judge Gorsuch will become Justice Gorsuch. He will be on the Supreme Court. We will now have a nine-member court for the first time in some time. What is the immediate impact of Gorsuch serving on the court? Well, the, in the, since uh, Justice Scalia's unfortunate demise, the uh, court has been divided, and they have been uh, very uh, hesitant to issue important rulings. Mm -hmm. So it's been a calm period. It's been like the eye of the storm. And the court has avoided, uh, you know, extremely controversial uh, uh, pronouncements. Frankly, that's not been all that bad. It's been a bit of a relief after, uh, you know, such contentious uh, uh, times uh, uh, toward, the, uh, toward the end. I suspect that, uh, that we're not going to return hundred percent to that period when uh, the court, both sides of the court were quite aggressive and, uh, and I, I, I suspect that Neil Gorsuch is going to be a 
a, a calming influence rather than an aggravating one. I also suspect that the court, the eight other justices, may have kind of appreciated a period of time in which uh, they weren't at each other's throats uh, over uh, hot-button issues that are really often, frankly, not their job to decide anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, so maybe uh, his return will uh, will bring a little bit more sanity to the process. In your Defining Ideas column, uh, you pointed out that uh, I think you took a five-year stretch of Gorsuch on the Tenth Circuit, and you looked at instances where he was on a three-judge panel deciding a case with one Democrat and one Republican, Gorsuch being the third vote. And I believe you concluded that one-third of the time that he voted with the Democrat. Mm, almost a third. Almost one-third Just of the time. under. So he is not the rock-rib conservative, perhaps, the reliable conservative vote maybe on the Supreme Court that some people might assume. Well, I think that's true. Mm-hmm. But people also imagine that the other justices line up as along these left-right lines all of the time. Sometimes they do. Right. But there is a remarkable number of cases when the court is either unanimous or where it divides on lines that are uh, not left-right, where you have odd coalitions between uh, you know, right. Scalia and Ginsburg and whomever versus, uh, uh, versus the other. And I think that the American people have been fed a narrative that the Supreme Court has the same kind of politics that uh, Congress does. And it's a, it's a very different kind of an institution, I think, much less uh, responsive to these uh, uh, partisan divides than the rest of the government is. Mm-hmm. Well, with the, uh, with the nuclear option now in play, Donald Trump is free to nominate whoever he chooses and assume that person could get through on a straight party line vote now. So do you think Trump will go back to the list that he plucked Gorsuch from, or will he perhaps do something surprising? You know, predicting President Trump is not one of my specialties. I didn't take that course in law school. (laughs) But do you think, would your expectation be that he would return to that that list? Well, I do think that the Gorsuch nomination has been the most successful and applauded thing that President Trump has done so far. And when you do... And and so maybe he will follow the same approach next time. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know if you saw this, but a University of Georgia law professor and a UMass Amherst political scientist have come up with a plan to fix the Supreme Court, as they see it. And what they want to do is they want to impose staggered 18-year terms for Supreme Court justices. So you get put on the high court, and you serve for 18 years, and you are gone. Uh, If you look at the uh, justices right now sitting on the court, Kennedy um, is uh, approaching his 30th year. Uh, Thomas has done a quarter of a century. Ginsburg is approaching the 25-year mark. Breyer is, I think, at 23 years. Then you go down to 12 with Roberts, 11 with Alito, Sotomayor, and Kagan are at eight and seven years, so they're a ways off. But do you see any any benefit in having an 18-year term limit on justices? I think think – that is not a bad idea. It's also very unlikely to happen since it would require a constitutional amendment. Right. Uh, but uh, the, the great advantage of it, I think, is that it would prevent justices from being able to have so much influence on who their successors are going to be by the timing of their leaving mm-hmm. uh, on the court. 
And there's something unseemly about this. Uh, not, and here we're talking not just Supreme Court justices, but lower court uh, judges as well, sort of hanging on until there's a president of their own uh, party. Uh, the judiciary is supposed to be nonpartisan, and I just think that that temptation to to give your own side a benefit is uh, just is not quite the way judges ought to be operating. With an 18-year uh, staggered term, uh, every uh, president would be able to uh, have, have the same, basically a, every eight-year president would name right. two justices. And that's uh, that would regularize the process. It might even make each individual seat less uh, fraught. Uh, of course, in this case, it would mean Merrick Garland didn't get nominated. If he had been, if if Gar- I mean if Garland had been confirmed, it would have been the first time uh, in many decades that a president had named three, three uh, justices. You could have to go back to Eisenhower mm-hmm. to find three. I think Eisenhower had three, mm-hmm. if I'm not mistaken. Roosevelt certainly had yes. three plus. Because right, right. Roosevelt had four terms, which is uh, <laughs> that's right, that's right. Uh, I mean, one, so, and 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 the balance in the system is really well maintained by our. There's nothing that says we have Republicans and Democrats succeeding ourselves as president, but that's been the practice ever since, uh, uh, really, since the end of World War II. You have eight-year presidents. And then the Republicans have an eight years, and Democrats do, with the sole exception uh, when Jimmy Carter lost re-election. And with presidents then naming on almost always two justices and naming roughly 40 percent of the lower federal courts, it means that the courts have a kind of guaranteed balance to them that no other uh, portion of our government has. Um, it may be that that doesn't make them nonpartisan, but it does make them more balanced. And because judges do work with each other so closely, uh, I think that the effect of that is to make uh, the, is to, uh, is, is really to make the courts act more like courts and less like politicians because uh, I think social science research is pretty clear that when you put a lot of people together who share the same views that they tend to become more extreme uh, in those views. And when you have balanced panels as we do in the judiciary, I think the result is for all the judges to become uh, less extreme uh, in their views. It's, it's really a very good system, but it depends upon this accident of American politics that we uh, shift back and forth uh, between the parties uh, with respect to the president. Right. Now, there is a, uh, a talk inside the Senate right now. I think Jeff Flake, uh, the senator from Arizona, uh, is a proponent of this, and that is to break up the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals and essentially turn it into a California, Oregon, Washington, Hawaii operation, take the other states that are inland, Arizona and the mountain states, turn them into a separate circuit. I don't have a strong opinion about no. this. Um, California is so much the largest state in the Ninth Circuit that it's really kind of hard to draw boundaries that right. uh, that split the Ninth Circuit effectively without either leaving without dividing California into two, which would be very awkward for a lot of reasons, or maybe having a one-state circuit, which would be very peculiar. Right. Uh, so. I, 
I don't. Well, I'm curious because you served on the Tet Circuit, mm-hmm. and certainly among conservatives, the Ninth Circuit is seen as the bad boy circuit. And obviously, California affects its opinion, but then also people will cite the number of cases that get overturned that the Ninth Circuit rules on. Um, when you were on the Tenth Circuit, did the judges on the Tenth look at the Ninth and wonder what the Ninth was doing? Or <laughs> <laughs> of course, of course. I mean, there was a no, there were several years uh, in a row where the. Uh, Supreme Court was reviewing something like 26 cases right. from the Ninth Circuit and reversing all 26, and, uh, and uh, the Tenth Circuit had a considerably better record uh, than that. But I don't think that it's because the Ninth Circuit is so large. Mm-hmm. I think it's because California is a one-party state. Right, right. So Donald Trump has quite many judicial vacancies to fill right now. I think he has at least four to fill on the Ninth Circuit. There are a handful of federal district courts sitting around California he can fill. And you look around the country writ large, and there are vacancies that he can get into. Uh, you are asked by the Trump administration, what do I look for in a federal judge? What do I look for in a nominee? Mm-hmm. What's your advice? Um, first of all, I do think that we want to have a range of professional experience mm-hmm. on the courts of appeals. Uh, you want uh, some people with a prosecutorial background, some with a defense background, some who have uh, been out in private practice, uh, business law uh, background. You want a few academics. I, I personally I I think say, academics make the best I was judges. Say I, didn't, I didn't hear the word academic but until you the don't, end. But you don't want all academics. You right. want you you want the courts to be peppered with. Uh, you want perhaps an uh, academic who has had some experience before becoming an academic. Well, that would be good. That would be good you know. too. Uh, and then I think that you look for people who have a substantial reputation in their community, that is. so that, And the reason for that is that they will, um, they will care about their reputation and therefore be much more careful in what, the, in what they do. Mm-hmm. Um, you want people who, you know, if they were to be sloppy or irresponsible would actually get a little bit of blowback from people that they care about. Um, you know, beyond that, you know, there are a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of good judges out there with, you know, of, of different shapes and sizes. So I don't think that there should be, a, you know, there's no one a cookie cutter okay. approach. Speaking of shapes and sizes, questions of gender, questions of diversity. So how do you balance that into the mix? Well, I think it's good that we have uh, as much diversity on the courts as we do. I think that it is, uh, we've come a long way, and it does not need to be quite the central um, feature that it was, say, when Jimmy Carter first started naming uh, significant numbers of women to the courts, and there weren't very many uh, uh, women judges. Today, it's a, you know, you, we don't want the diversity to to go away, it's still an important matter, but uh, this is a battle that has largely been fought and won. Right. Uh, should it matter if Donald Trump's next Supreme Court pick, should he get another chance to make a pick, if that pick were a white male? I, I think it depends on who that is. It depends in part on who's being replaced. I thought, I mean, there, there are several outstanding women on the list that, mm-hmm. uh, from which uh, uh, President Trump chose. I thought it was at least possible that he would go out of his way to choose one of them because he has this 
PR problem with respect to women, and right. I don't know, you know, what the substance is about this, but he could have. Uh, th- this would be a way of uh, allaying uh, uh, some of that. Uh, I think that he should name the best candidate, but when some of the candidates who are female are as excellent as they are on that list, it would be an easy thing to do. Right. So. Th- there is a political consideration to go into this in addition to the pure qualification of the, of the nominee. There is. Very interesting. But that's more of a political consideration for him than it is having to do with the quality of the court. Right. So when Harry Reid deployed the nuclear option a few years back as it applies to uh, lower court judges and presidential appointees, could you say at that time, would you have said at this time, the Supreme Court will go nuclear sooner rather than later? Oh, yes. Yeah. That was, to you, it was inevitable. It's not surprising. <laughs> it was going to happen the first time a majority will in the Senate was frustrated. Yeah. I, I think it's well reporting. We seem to have this perception that the Senate is this noble group of 100 individuals who are above the fray of Congress. They're sitting back and being deliberative and thinking great thoughts at all times. And the Senate changed. And the Senate changed really about 25 to 30 years ago when you saw House members come over to the Senate. And they brought with them a certain kind of street fighting style with them. Trent Lott was a good example of this. Barbara Boxer here in California is maybe the epitome of this in terms of just kind of bringing a brawling attitude into this chamber. So I think this notion of the Senate being a sort of a rarefied, dignified place, no, that's that's a bygone era, folks. I don't spend much time in the Senate, but, you know, that, that seems right. But I would also say that this is true of many of our institutions uh, uh, universities are, have changed for the worse. The press has changed for the worse. Senate has changed for the worse. Uh, I think, in general, um, uh, an attitude of uh, of uh, fighting for your side rather than mutual deliberation and cooperation is the has been the character of our of the last generation. Right. If you follow cable news, for example, Fox News. Federal judges are very convenient punching bags on issues, out-of-touch jurors, decisions they don't agree with. Do you think the public should have confidence in the judicial system right now? Do you Are you confident in the way the judicial system is carried out? Well, all these questions are compared to what? And I think that we have the best, most professional, um, most reliable judicial system of any place in the world. There are a few other countries that might be... Uh, uh, close to that, uh, and I hope that uh, it, it's perfectly legitimate, even a good thing for judicial decisions to be criticized. Right. They're, uh, they're, they're part of the government. Citizens should criticize them when they need criticizing, and you know, Lord knows, you know, judges are there, have life tenure, uh, right. and we don't need to protect them from, uh, from criticism. But I do hope that the American public doesn't get the impression from the criticism that uh, things are worse than they actually are. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, the vast proportion of cases when you go into the federal judiciary and most state judiciaries, uh, you're going to get a decision based upon an intelligent and dispassionate analysis of the law. I think the Supreme Court has been, uh, has been, pretty, really very good on most of these dimensions, except when it comes to the most hot-button, politically charged 
cases where I think the court has not always behaved as a court of law. Uh, those cases are small in number, but very important in terms of the publicity uh, that, that they get. And I think those cases may give people the misimpression that, uh, that the courts are you know, more politicized than they actually are. Right. I think what I'm getting at is here in California, for example, um, judges can be removed from office by the voters. Uh, the Supreme Court justices have to go on the ballot when their terms expire. Uh, here, very locally close to Stanford, there was a case where a judge issued a verdict against a uh, Stanford athlete. And um, the public was outraged. They felt the, uh, the, they felt the uh, punishment was not severe enough. And immediately a recall campaign began against that judge. So there is a way to apply populist anger toward a judge in California. But populist anger cannot be directed against a federal judge who has a lifetime appointment. So the question is, if you are an angry populist and you feel the judiciary, for whatever reason, you are living in Arizona, you think the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals doesn't address your concerns, whatever your motivation, how do you address the judiciary? You don't, you don't have a f way to, to lash out against the judiciary. I guess the only way you can do it is through a candidate who appeals to you by saying, I want to break up the Ninth Circuit, or by God, I'll put a conservative conservative on the Supreme Court. Well, that's true, but there also are demonstrations, uh, you know, frequently on particular issues that are before the court. So, you know, Roe versus Wade was decided in the early 1970s, and every year on the anniversary of Roe versus Wade, hundreds of thousands of uh, people who think that that decision was unjust mm -hmm. um, march in Washington D.C. to to protest it, and they. You know, cold weather and 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 pleasant, and it's. Uh, uh, I I think that they think that they are, you know, a continuing witness about that. Now that may not have direct effect under our constitution. Demonstrations are not supposed to have a direct effect, mm -hmm. but it does remind presidents and senators and maybe even justices that there are many hundreds of thousands of people who care enough to uh, to come out and demonstrate, and their demonstrations on the other side of. Uh, uh, of uh, other questions that just happens to be the most perennial. Right. But do you, do you worry or do you think that perhaps if this populist wave continues in this country for a few more election cycles that it could drift toward the judiciary and you might see a push for term limits for judges or some measure like that? Well, again, it's very hard to amend the Constitution. So right. I'm not particularly worried about most of that. What I do worry about is that if we have a, a president and a Senate of opposite parties who simply, are, where the, the Senate is simply not going to confirm anyone mm -hmm. uh, whom the president names, and I don't think that's a far-fetched hypothetical, uh, then there are going to be large numbers of vacancies. The president is almost certainly going to be tempted to fill the courts with recess appointments, which are short-term appointments. I think that is, uh, and that will be lawful. The president has the constitutional authority when vacancies arise during the recess of the Senate to fill those with short-term appointments. Uh, that would be truly corrosive of, of an independent judiciary. That would be a terrible thing to happen. Uh, I think it's possible. Okay. Final question, then we're going to wrap up. Let's take Michael McConnell from 15 years ago and let's put Michael McConnell from 15 years ago.
ago into this day and age. And Michael McConnell from 15 years ago is asked by President Trump, would you like to serve on a circuit court? Knowing your experience from the last time you went through this, would you still want to be a court nominee, given the attitude in today's Senate, today's politics? Um, yeah, I, you know, I think I personally would have the same reaction that I did then. You'd go for it again. Right. I, but there are others for whom the cost is greater. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm an academic. Uh, having a nomination over your head when you cannot take clients is economically devastating, for especially for uh, small practitioners. Mm -hmm. uh, it it's, may not even be possible for many people to, to be in that situation uh, for, for such a long period of time. Uh, it's also, you know, it is really deeply unpleasant. That doesn't, it didn't bother me enough, but it has to be said that nominees are not treated like real human beings. They're treated like political footballs, right. and it doesn't really matter. Uh, I mean, dur during when Sam Alito was at his hearing, uh, uh, he was uh, treated so brutally by the Democratic senators that his wife uh, uh, started crying and fled from the room. Right. So your advice to somebody who approaches you saying that, hey, they've reached out to me and asked me if I want to serve on the court, what is your advice to that person? Well, I, th I think I would probably say yes, but I would warn them that they need to have a pretty thick skin and they have, to, they have a lot of unpleasantness to look forward to. Now, once they're on the other side and they uh, – uh, I, I think the judiciary is – it's actually quite surprising how – different the tone is once you're confirmed. Mm -hmm. So you go through an extremely political process of confirmation, then you don the robe, you take the oath, and on the other side of this, most judges, I think, do their absolute best to uh, deliberate on the law without partisan considerations taking their part. Again, in very hot-button sort of culture war-ish issues, that isn't as true as I wish it were. But uh, for the vast majority of cases, on the other side, it's an entirely different uh, experience. And um, I, I, you know, I, I think it may be a little bit like <laughs> childbirth, right? You go through labor, and then, then there's the baby. <laughs> All right. And are you going to send a note to Justice Gorsuch congratulating him on his new job? I certainly will. Very good. Do you have his email address? I do. I trust you don't want to give it out on this podcast. Um, I think not on this podcast. <laughs> Very good. Michael McConnell, I enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. You've been listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast on the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. If you've been listening, if you've been enjoying Area 45, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. You can find the Hoover Institution online at www.hoover.org. While you're there, I encourage you to sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which sends you the best work of Hoover fellows, including Michael McConnell, straight to your inbox. You can also find the Hoover Institution on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at HooverInst. That's at Hoover, I-N-S-T. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Area 45. Until then, take care. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, 
SoundCloud, or Stitcher. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.